honor you today. We come to you to worship you, to think about you, to get our minds and thoughts upon you, and not so much on ourselves. We want to hear your voice speak to us. We want to be changed by your voice speaking to us, Use your Holy Spirit sort of breathing life into the words from Scripture. And I pray that I can be your useful instrument and tool to share your word to God's people, this local church called Mercy Hill Christian Church. And we honor you, we worship you, we are grateful to you for being so generous to us, not only in giving us the jobs that we need and the homes to live in that we need and the food that we need to eat and the clothes that we need to wear and the families that we have, but most gratefully, we thank you for your son sending Jesus to earth 2,000 years ago to live our perfect life, to die our death on the cross, to rise again for us. You earn salvation for us, Lord Jesus, and we are grateful. Lord, as we get into this new series about the purpose of the church and why bother with it, would you reignite a passion for your church and the necessity of your church in our world today, that it is your primary instrument and tool to expand your kingdom here on earth. Thank you for not taking us home to heaven already. You have given us a mission to do And would you inspire us today to pursue you and pursue your mission for your namesake and for your glory. Be present among us strongly. Open up our hearts and minds to the truth of your word in this moment, right here, right now. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to ask Dave. Actually, i got a video for you. Sorry. Share today's scripture. Hill, reading from Second Acts, verses 32 to 47. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Thank you very much, Dave. We're kicking off a new fall sermon series called Why Bother with Church? And that's what we're looking at over the next uh, four or five Sundays, I believe. Have you ever asked this question? Why bother? I mean, why do we go as a church plant? We've been around for about 11, almost 12 years. There's a lot of effort involved with setup and takedown, putting up chairs, putting this thing. This thing on the floor takes up a ton of effort. It's such a joy to put down and take back up again. But why do we go to all this effort and this, this time and this energy and kids ministry and youth ministry? And why do people give generously of their finances, their hard-earned money to a church like this one to make it sort of happen? And why do people wake up on Sunday mornings uh, to worship with their church family and hear from God as the Bible is being preached? Why do Christians gather with people that are so different from one another? I mean, in this church, we, at one time I counted 13 different nations. In this church alone, why do we, and we're different, and we, it it's, can be awkward sometimes. And so why do we bother gathering with people that are from different, different uh, cultural background and financial background and generational backgrounds, some, some are young, some are not so young, and why do we do this? A lot of people say about the idea of being a part of a church, no thanks. Not for me. You know why? I'm too busy. I got too much going on. Sunday morning is my only morning to sleep in, all right? In fact, I'd rather be shopping. I'd rather go to Costco where everyone else is at and catch up on the grocery shopping that I need to do. I got to take my kid to their sporting activity or their arts activity. Uh, I'd rather just do something more fun and enjoyable with my weekend. And so I'd rather do anything, honestly, than bother with church. And if I go there, you know that pastor, you know what he's going to do? He's going to make me, he's going to drop this guilt bomb on me and make me feel bad about myself and what that's the last thing I need frankly you know this is how a lot of people view church in our wider culture is it not what about Christians what about some of you who have been maybe a, a part of church for a year or years or maybe decades maybe you're feeling this as well like why bother with church you know I'm kind of tired of the church thing what's the point maybe you've lost that loving feeling Whoa, that loving feeling for the church that you maybe once had back in the day. And, and because of all of these things that we've identified and looked at, this is why we're doing this series, to, to revisit, to examine, to maybe re-examine uh, why church is indeed central to God's purposes for the spreading of His kingdom in this world and the showcasing of God's glory and His character. The local church like us is central to that. It's his idea. Here's to, uh, today's big idea for why you should bother with church, and it's our sermon title. And this is one key aspect. Why should you bother with church? Because the church can help you find your way back to God. The church can help you find your way back to God. God has chosen to use the local church family as a tool, as an instrument to help spiritually lost people all around us 
find their way back to God, to the one who made and formed them, to the one who loves them more than any other person loves them, to the one who's made a, a way possible for lost spiritually people to find their way back to God, to find Jesus, and to be saved by Jesus, and to be transformed by Jesus. This is what we're looking at today. That's the big idea. Now, let me just set the table about this idea of a church family helping people find their way back to God. Let me tell you a true news story from this last Monday. True news story from just this last Monday, September 4th, about a very dramatic rescue mission undertaken by... North Shore Rescue. By the way, don't you love the North Shore Rescue volunteers? It seems like every day they're having to, or every weekend, having to rescue somebody who gallivants off into the wilderness and the North Shore Mountains, and they don't take anything with them, no preparation, and then they get stuck, and then they have to call these guys, and they're they're just saving people left, right, and center. But anyhow, last Monday night, here was the situation. You may have seen this in the news. North Shore Rescue, they're contacted by somebody just before 9 p.m. Monday night. It's getting dark, and these couple of hikers who call them, they are in trouble. And these hikers, they are, they are hiking on Crown Mountain. Does anyone know where Crown Mountain is? I don't either. But anyhow, it's just north of Vancouver, apparently. And one of the hikers, all of a sudden, falls down off a rocky bluff called the Camel. And he falls off the camel, but this is a big camel, bigger than a real camel. He falls off the camel and plunges down more than nine meters down the mountain. And obviously, this guy is in very, very rough shape. He is not doing well. And so the North Shore Rescue Team, they're called, and they respond right away. Ten members hike into where these guys are at and where the victim is. It takes them three full hours to get there. And by the way, it's pitch black. It's darkness. And they finally get to them, at which point the team, they work to help this guy as best they can. And as they attend to or try to attend to his immediate needs, they work as a team. They put their heads together, all ten of them. They assess the mans together. They strategize to figure out how do we get this guy off the mountain, get him to a hospital to get him the medical attention that he needs. Long story short, here's what they decide to do. They call the army. They call a cormorant in from a, a CFB Comox, and the cormorant has night vision capabilities. And, and so, by the way, this helicopter is brought in at your and my expense, taxpayer expense, right? I mean, this is big money here, but human life is worth it, is it not? And they come in, and they, they take this guy with the helicopter, they get him on the cormorant, they take him to YVR, at which their place, there is an, an ambulance waiting there. They cart him off to a hospital. The man makes it. He does not die. He has been rescued. He has been saved. Here's my point. A local church family like Mercy Hill is a lot like the North Shore rescue team. We are a spiritually, a spiritually focused rescue team. Jesus instructs us as his church family to respond to spiritually lost and spiritually dead people. And we respond to them with love, with time, with money, and with intentional effort. And most importantly, we respond with self-sacrificial love. Why do we do this? Because unless a local church team or family like Mercy Hill, unless we respond to our lost world in this way, real people not yet Christians, will not be saved. 
They will not be rescued by Jesus. The people in our lives, they will not find or discover the God who made them, made them and formed them, who loves them like no other, and who has made a way possible for them to be saved and rescued by Jesus and to experience not only forgiveness of their sins and transformation by Jesus, but heaven forevermore. They miss out on that unless we respond. You see, the church has been given by mission, uh, by Jesus, a mission and a commission to do this, to help people find their way back to God. This is one of the big reasons why the church exists. This is the reason why we're still here on earth. Jesus has not yet taken us home to heaven with him to enjoy him and to see him when faith becomes sight. No, not yet. We have work to do together. And, and, and this is why we have not yet been taken home. We are to be used by Jesus to show people the way of rescue through him. He is the rescuer of the world. He is the savior of the world. And how will they find out about the rescuer and the savior of the world unless you and unless I point them to the rescuer and the savior? There he is. Here's what he's done. The world has no idea by and large. So our mission is to point them to Christ. All right, let's transition. Let's take a breather. I need to take a breather. In your notes, there's a sermon outline. And let me share with you three reasons why people need to find their way back to God through the church's ministry and rescuing action. All right? Here's why. The first reason is that you need saving. You need saving. You need rescuing. Everyone needs saving. You, me, everyone. And if you're a Christian, you've been saved. That's good. Let's get that cleared up. But we all need saving. And this idea of saving and rescuing or being rescued, being saved, is a mega theme of the entire Bible. It's all over the Bible. And let me try to explain this further by giving you an analogy of being on the beach on a summer's day. So you might like to be on a beach in the summer, either sun tanning or you have an umbrella up to protect yourself from the sun. I get that. I burn very easily. Maybe you do as well. But imagine you're sitting on the beach, and you notice on this warm summer day, there's a guy out in the water quite a ways out into the ocean. And there he is. He appears to not have a life jacket on. And there he is sort of flailing around way out in the water, not doing well. So what do you do? You call out to him, and you say, do you need help? Do you need rescuing? He says, I'm just fine. I'm doing Fantastic. Don't you worry. The problem is, you notice now that his head is bobbing below the surface and then bobbing up ahead, atop the surface, uh, this bobbing up and down, at which point the lifeguard intervenes and steps in and yells out to this guy and says, Hey, do you need help? And he says, I'm just fine. Everything's fantastic. Don't you worry. I'm good. I'm good. Just a few seconds later, what happens? The man's head disappears. He's now under the water. He's gone. He's nowhere to be seen. Well, then the lifeguards jump in, and they together as a team rescue the guy, and they pull him out, and he's, he's saved. Here's, here's the man's issue. He was drowning in the ocean, but he didn't even know it. He was that unaware, not self-aware at all. He thought he was doing fine. He thought he was a good enough swimmer. He thought he was a self-sufficient dude independent. I'm fantastic. I am able to resist the ocean's undertow. I am able to resist its currents, and it's able to resist its cold temperature. But in the end, is he able to resist these forces working against him? 
He is not. He needed, he required saving. And this is precisely where most people in our relationship networks, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, perhaps in our extended family, this is precisely where they're at. This is where most not yet Christian people find themselves and they wrongly assume that I'm spiritually just fine. I'm okay. I'm good enough for God. And if I'm not even sure there is a God, but if there is a God, I am one of the good people. I'm doing pretty good. All right? Don't try to, don't, don't you worry about me. Don't you talk to Jesus about me. Leave me alone, you so-called spiritual lifeguard. I mean, you spend your time with someone else. I'm good. But the Bible's clear, you see. You, me, all of us need saving, need rescuing. It's, it's not optional. In our passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 40 says these words, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 47 also talks, we'll talk more about 47 later on. It says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being what? Those who are being what? There it is. Saved. It's not optional. You need saving. I need saving. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, very famous, well-known verse, but one that we must be reminded about time and time again. It says, for all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and we all fall short of his glory. We've all broken God's commandments in some way. We break his commandments every day. So you fall short. I fall short. We all fall short of God's standard of, of moral perfection. All of us have blown it morally at some point. Even if you've only broken one commandment, you're still messed. And of course, none of us have broken just one commandment. And if we have, we're sinning by assuming that. Now a person might say, wait a minute here. Calm down. Calm down, Kurt. I am one of the good guys. I am the exception. I don't, I'm not an immoral person. I'm a good person. Yeah, I screw up here and there, but generally good. I'm a good employee, a good husband, a good wife, a good parent. I recycle. I mean, I vote. Don't try to tell me I'm a moral mess or a big sinner. I'm not. But you see, in that moment of self-defense, you're committing one of the most heinous, serious sins that Jesus himself confronted, the sin of self-righteousness, wrongly believing that you can claim a stake to your own moral goodness and your own moral righteousness before God based on my, look at my moral track record, look at my spiritual resume, it's outstanding. But you are committing a heinous sin of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. You are not, you are neither self-righteous nor self-sufficient. The Bible's clear. All have sinned. Romans 3.23. All have sinned. You've sinned. I've sinned. We've all sinned against God. We've sinned God against God in very creative ways with our words, with our actions, with our motivations. And we all fall short. And so, therefore, every single one of us needs, requires saving and a local church family like Mercy Hill, our job is simply to point people to the Savior, to the Rescuer, the ultimate lifeguard, Jesus Christ. I'll talk more about Jesus later on. But let me finish this point by drawing your attention to Acts chapter 2, verse 36. The Apostle Peter, this is a fantastic sermon that he preaches in this chapter, but he says this in his sermon, these words, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This, here it is, ready? This Jesus 
whom you crucified. That was a little more intense than I wanted, but this Jesus whom you crucified. So here's what Peter is doing. He's laying the blame of the death of Jesus on who? On the Jews who are before him. He's preaching probably from an upper deck or upper room. He's preaching to the people below. A lot of these very same Jewish listeners, as he's preaching this sermon, were there on the day that Jesus was condemned by the people, by the mob. Pontius Pilate is asking the people, should they crucify Jesus or crucify Barabbas? And they say, crucify him being Jesus. So these are the very same people who are yelling to Pontius Pilate, crucify Jesus. And so these are the people that Peter is confronting with that sermon on that day. But you see, before we just lay the blame for the death of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus solely at the feet of these Jews in Peter's day, there's another aspect to this idea about Jesus whom you crucified. You, me, every single person who has ever lived, we have all crucified Jesus Christ on that cross. You might say, calm down. Wait a minute. I, I wasn't even there. I was just born a few years ago. I can't be culpable for this man's death thousands of years ago, so don't try to blame me for the death of Jesus. But you see, no, no, no. We are all to blame because your sins and my sins, all of our collective sins, drove Jesus to make the choice to, to die on that cross for our sins in our place. Had we never sinned in thought, word, or deed against God, Jesus would not have had to have died on the cross. He wouldn't have gone to the cross at all had our sins not drove him there. But he went to the cross to pay the price for your sins, the price of God's wrath and his judgment and death. And he endured that for you and I. So yes, you crucified Jesus. I crucified Jesus. We all collectively crucified Jesus Christ, God the Son, the maker of heaven and earth. We killed him. Therefore, everyone needs saving. Everyone needs grace. Everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone needs rescuing. Everyone, everyone, every single person needs to be saved, even if they don't even know it yet. And we've got to take this message that we've all crucified Christ to our world and to, to show them hope. There's hope. There's hope for, your, for you. So our job as a local church family is to send the clarion call, this distress call to all the not yet Christian people in our lives. That is our job. That is our job. We'll talk more about that later on. Let us now move on to the second point on the sermon outline in your notes, namely this. When a local church like us is devoted to Scripture, to each other, and to prayer, and to praising God, the Lord adds those who are being saved. When a local church is devoted to Scripture, to each other, to prayer, and to praising God, the Lord adds those who are being saved to that church family. A couple of examples here. Let's imagine a marriage, a husband and a wife. If they seek to serve one another, if they lay down their self-interest, if they're more about the other than themselves, and they work at serving the other, their spouse's needs and their wants on a, in a regular way, imperfectly, but if that's by and large what they see their, their, their role to do in that marriage, what is that marriage going to be like if that's the focus? That's going to be generally a happy marriage, a fulfilling marriage, a good marriage, a thriving marriage. 
What about this? Let's look at a, a family, a mom and a dad and kids, okay? In this family, if mom and dad are actually doing their job, and we do this very imperfectly, do, do we not? It's tough to be a parent. But if the parents, by and large, seek to serve their kids well, to give them wise training, to give them wise counsel, to be very patient and loving and compassionate towards your kids, and, and tough love when necessary, but if that's your general approach over years, what generally happens to the kids? The kids tend to do pretty well. In most cases, not in every case, but in most cases, they tend to do well, they tend to flourish, they tend to be fantastic little people. And it's the same thing for a local church family. We're a family. And as we are submitted to our King Jesus, he is the head of our church family, the head of the church at large. When we do a certain set of essential practices ongoing consistently, you know what happens? The Lord adds more and more and more people who are being saved. He does that. We see the baptism tank being used a lot, and it's a wonderful thing. And in our passage in Acts chapter 2, particularly in verses 42 to 47, we see this brand new fledgling big early church of thousands in Jerusalem they are doing some very, very important essential things, very important practices that naturally led to a lot of people more and even more and even more people being saved and being, becoming Christians. Literally thousands. It was amazing. And they're seeing their need to be saved by Jesus. And they're coming to Jesus thanks to what the early Jerusalem church was doing. And so... What are the things that they are doing? What are these practices that we examine in Acts chapter 2 that Dave read for us? Well, there's four key things that they are doing, and they are devoted to these four things. And you might know what these already are. Subpoint little a under number two is simply they are devoted to Scripture. They are devoted to Scripture. Let's try it again. To Scripture. There it is. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so it says in verse 42 that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, apostles' teaching is code speak for Scripture, for Bible. These guys are teaching them the, the, the teachings from Jesus. They're teaching them uh, the Old Testament as well. And these are the, the 12 disciples minus Judas who have been mentored by Jesus for three full years. And now they're simply conveying to God's people this fledgling uh, young church the teachings of Scripture, and this is what they were doing. So they're saying, here's Scripture, here's what it says, here's what it means, here's how we apply that Scripture. That's, in essence, what the, the job of a preacher on any Sunday, their job is to do. And this is important for us because we have to remember, think about this, how do we primarily hear from God? How do, we, how do you primarily hear God's voice in your life? How do you do that? Primarily, the way in which you figure out and find out what it is to follow Jesus, what Jesus wants you to do, what Jesus wants us to do as a church family, is we look to the Bible. And that's why we're big on Bible teaching at this church, because simply we're trying to find out what, we're trying to hear God's voice primarily speaking to us through his, his word, the Bible. And that's, the Holy Spirit uses the words of the Bible and brings the words of the Bible to life. And now we, we can be inspired by it and convicted by it and energized by it. It's fantastic. And that's what they were doing. And that's what we must do as well. 
Some people want to edit the Bible. Is that a good idea? Start editing the Bible. Maybe, it, maybe we should soften this part of it. And maybe that part. That's a little rough around the edges as well. You know what? There's about, what about this Old Testament passage back here? What happens when you start editing the Bible? If you start editing the Bible here and there, you might as well edit the whole thing at, to be consistent, at which point you might as well just, just throw, away, throw away the whole book. We can't. We must take a high view of Scripture. We must respect what it says, seek to understand it, and, and just be, seek to, to be fed spiritually by God's Word. We must do that as a local church family. I'm going to give you a few perhaps silly examples about how important the Bible is for the life of a local church like Mercy Hill. And again, these don't do justice, but Bible teaching is so important to the life of a local church so that they can see people come back to God, just like how a great cake is dependent on a great recipe. Okay? Why is that cake great? It's because it had a great recipe. Okay? It had a great source. Just like you traveling to Timbuktu, has anyone done this recently? And if you get there, you know why you got the Timbuktu? It's because you had Google Maps or Waze app on your phone. That's why you got there. It helped you get there. Or just like you building IKEA furniture, which I assume no one actually enjoys doing. Does anyone actually like IKEA furniture? But I won't even go there. Uh, But just like you building IKEA furniture is dependent on what? It's dependent on you actually following those instructions that you can't really understand. But anyhow, you can't build that furniture without those instructions. So is it absolutely mission critical for Mercy Hill Church and every local church family to take a very high view of Scripture, to seek to understand it, to seek to be taught by it, to seek to learn what Christ has said in it in order to help people come back to God? Because if we're all about helping people find their way back to God, Scripture is, is the, what they need to be taught to learn what it is to be a Christian. And so that's essential. Just as the early church was devoted to Scripture, so must you, so must I, so must we be devoted to Scripture. That's the first key essential thing in order to see people come back to God. The second thing that we must be, be devoted to to see people come back to God is each other. We must be devoted to each other. We see this from verse 47. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We got that. And here it is, the fellowship to the breaking of bread. The fellowship and the breaking of bread are the key words in those verses on this point. I like how the ESV Study Bible explains these words, and I quote, fellowship, which the Greek word for fellowship in this verse is koinonia. That's all about participation and sharing, okay? That's fellowship. Include, included the sharing of material goods, the breaking of bread, which likely covers both the Lord's Supper and a larger fellowship meal. So this is really good stuff, isn't it? A local church family is to be so devoted to each other that we are sharing our material goods, sharing tools, sharing stuff, sharing clothes, sharing whatever is needed to those who need it. That's what we do. That's what it is to be devoted to each other. Did you know that something like five or six cars have been donated from people in the church to those who needed a car? Okay? Five or six cars you might not think, and these were not brand new vehicles, by the way, but these were cars that were needed and cars that met a, a great need in those individuals' lives. That's fantastic. Let's see more of that. Let's see more of that. Then we see, in fact, somebody in our church has a need for a place to live right now. Single guy, 
come talk to me and I'll get you connected. If you have a place in this area that would be ideal, uh, come talk to me and we'll get you connected, all right? Um, but we meet needs. We're all about meeting each other's needs. Then we see the breaking of bread. Let's look at that. The breaking of bread not only covers the Lord's Supper, we are a church that celebrates communion every Sunday, but you see back in the early church, here's what they did. They would eat together a lot. And at their potluck meals, at the end of those potluck meals, what would they do? Well, at this potluck meal, there would be wine, there would be bread already there. No one had to prepare extra little cups like we have over there. It was already there, ready to good, good to go. And all they would do very naturally is, you know what, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper in this moment. Let's take the wine, let's take some bread, let's focus on what Christ did for us. And it was just very natural. It was a wonderful kind of thing. But here's my point. My point is, we live in a culture that is very much absent of hospitality. This, this idea of inviting each other into one another's homes, that's kind of the basic idea of hospitality is gone. We are now so busy and so stressed, our schedules are too full that we don't either make time or we just don't have time to invite other people from our church or other people from outside of our church into our homes anymore, and our homes simply become places where we eat and sleep, eat and sleep, eat and sleep, and exist. And that's, yes, that's important, but it's also, by design, our homes are to be open to others as believers. We're supposed to be the most hospitable people in the world. And so here's Mercy Hill, Hill's opportunity. By the way, some of you are very hospitable. You get this. I applaud you. But let's, let's examine this as a church family. Let us be so weird with hospitality to our world that they think we're nuts, okay? That we're regularly inviting one another into our homes, regularly inviting our neighbors into our homes. Uh, we're actually bringing people over for a meal or for coffee, dessert, play dates, this kind of thing. And you see, basic hospitality, it is so foreign, so absent in our current day and age that it's weird. It's just strange. You must have an agenda. Yes, we do have an agenda, but we're not forcing anything on anyone. But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing, hospitality. So let's use hospitality as a way to leverage the gospel, as a way for people to experience the, the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. You know, Jesus welcomes us to his home. Why aren't we welcoming the world into our home? Why are we not welcoming each other into our homes? Let us do that more. Let us do that more. Let's now move on to the third thing. So now they are devoted to Scripture. They are also devoted to one another. Now we see the third thing that they are devoted to in this passage. They are devoted to prayer. There it is. Prayer. We see this at the end of verse 42. They're devoted to prayer. They're seeking the Lord together. They are pouring out their hearts to Jesus. They are asking for Jesus' help every day to empower them to pursue his mission, to give them courage and boldness to talk about the gospel, talk about Jesus. They are declaring their dependence on Jesus for daily grace and daily help and daily mercy. It just makes logical sense, you see, for a church family like us to be praying, to be praying, and then pray some more, to constantly be asking the Lord for help. Would you help us to reach out to our lost world? Help us to be a rescue team that reaches out to our lost world. It just makes sense. You know why? Let's look at verse 47b. I think it's up there. There it is. Verse 47b in this passage, you will notice there's a certain person who is adding those who are being saved. Who is this person, day by day, is adding people who are being saved to their local church? Who is that person? 
That person is the Lord, meaning the Lord is the one who saves people. The Lord is the one who draws people to Jesus. It's the Lord who actually opens people's hearts and his minds to hear the words about Jesus and his gospel. So, of course, if we want to see more people, we want to see more people being baptized into Christ, what must we do? We must pray. Lord, we want to see more people dunked for your name's sake. We want to see more people added to this church for your name's sake. We want to see more people being saved for your name's sake. Therefore, we must pray. We must ask. He's the one. You can't change anyone's heart. I can't change anyone's heart. The Lord can change hearts. And so we must ask him to go before us, open people's hearts so that the seed of the gospel may be placed in there and germinate and start to grow, that they might be saved and rescued. And this is why, you know, many of you know that we're asking the church family to set aside one day out of the first two weeks of September. So one week of September is now gone, and now we've got one more week to, uh, uh, one day this coming week, to set aside a day to fast and to pray. By the way, I am a terrible faster. You may have noticed that. I don't fast well. Um, and so uh, you may think this is cheating, but the way that I get a day's fast in, and it's liquid only, I can't, be, I can't just do a water-only fast Yes, I know, I'm pathetic. Uh, so it's a liquid fast, but it happens from, so this last week it happened after dinner, I didn't eat, so that was the last meal, and I cheat by sleeping for eight hours of my one-day fast, and then I don't eat until the next day's dinner. That's how I do it. So this is doable. If I can do it, you can do it. Um, and the whole idea is you pray during your meal times. all right, for lost people, that God would open their hearts, people that you know, two or three names, And then you're praying also for boldness and courage to share the gospel when God gives you the opportunity and opens that door. And this is is fantastic stuff. God, I've seen God do this. And so will you fast and pray for one day this coming week? Some of you can't go without food. I get that. Maybe you're fasting from social media that day. Whatever, fast from something. And take that time to pray to God to use our church family to reach more people for his name's sake. Uh, One last quote I want to read here for you. I I think I'm getting a bit long here. Uh, But one last quote about this prayer idea is this. One, no, I'm I'm ahead of myself here. I'm sorry. There's one last thing. Prayer is is what they are devoted to. The last thing that they are devoted to is praising God in your notes. Praising God, little d, I apologize for getting that messed up. The first part of verse 47 tells us they're also praising God. And one quote I read about this idea of praising God as a church family is is this. One of the characteristics of true revival is a desire to spend much time in worship, engaging in heartfelt praise and worship. It's so healthy for a local church. As we looked at this summer, we went through summer in the Psalms. Uh, The Psalms is God's hymn book for God's people to learn how to worship God and respond to Him and how to pray. And we discovered that one key way that It's not the only way, but one key way that you and I are filled with God's presence and power is to gather with God's people in corporate worship on a regular basis, like Sunday mornings. And here's what happens in our Sunday worship when we sing to God, is we minister to God, we give back to God for a change, we express our worship to Him, and as we express worship to Him, what does God do to us? He ministers to us, and He fills us with His presence and His power in those moments of worship. And this is a beautiful thing. And this is an area that we need to work on as a, as a church family. We need to, to, to come here and get our focus on God and just worship him with our hearts and our minds and our hands 
It's healthy. It's good. It might be the best thing that you need. Uh, let's now move on to the last point in your notes as we bring this thing in for a landing. Number three in your notes is simply this. Responding to Jesus with repentance, faith, and baptism is how you find your way back to God. Just to be really clear, responding to Jesus with repentance, faith, and baptism is how you find your way back to God if this is where you're at. And we get this from verses 37 to 39. Let me read those very quickly. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, every one of you, every one of you. So baptism is not an optional thing. We're commanded to be baptized into Christ. Some of you may need to hear that. Baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the, the promises for you and for your children and for those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Let me ask you, I don't know where you're at. If you're not yet a Christian, are you ready to come back to God? He's waiting for you. He's ready for you. Are you ready for him? Do you understand what Christ has done for you? He's lived your perfect life. He's died your death on the cross for your sins in your place. He was judged for those sins. And he rose again three days later to to beat your, your worst enemies of Satan, sin, and death. If you understand the gospel, Jesus demands that you respond to him. You must respond to him with repentance. I'm no longer living my life my way on my own time, by my own rules. No, I'm putting that behind me, the life of sin. I'm now turning this direction. I'm now living under the reign and rule of King Jesus. He's boss now, not me. That's repentance repentance in a nutshell. Faith, you believe what Jesus did for you in his life, death, and resurrection. And then baptism, if you're ready to take this next step towards Jesus to become a Christian, come, let's have a conversation about that. Or talk to a Christian friend that you know here today. That's a conver- it's the most important decision you can make. Let's bring this to a close. And would you pray with me? Lord, I'm so grateful that we can come to you with empty hands. We have nothing to offer you, but we can come to you with empty hands simply to receive this gift of salvation. We need saving. And if someone is here who is not yet a Christian and who understands that things will not go well for them in the end if they don't turn to you for saving and rescue... If they are ready to turn to you, I pray that they would, that they wouldn't hesitate, that they would take the next steps of repentance and faith and baptism and and make you their king. Lord, we love you for the gospel. We would have nothing without you, King Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for transforming us through the work of your Holy Spirit within. We owe you so much, and we are so grateful. Lord, we think about your cross. We think about your resurrection as we participate in the Lord's Supper here in this moment. In Christ's name, amen.